This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. So we turned on sound masking in the apartment and I said to Joseph, you better have gotten like the golden nuggets of intelligence in this meeting because I was about to die from boredom. This was awful. And he looked at me and he's like, I got nothing. And I was like, what? You must be kidding me. He's like, safe, drag me to a local bar in his car where he can meet with his local mistress for two hours. And they sat at the bar, groping each other, kissing each other, while I sat uncomfortably next to him thinking, I cannot believe what's going on right now. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. Michelle Rigby Assad joined the CIA just weeks after the attacks of September 11th. She spent much of the next decade working undercover in the Middle East. Her story is unusual. Rigby Assad often worked with her Egyptian-American spouse, Joseph, also a CIA officer, as part of a husband and wife spy team. As a woman, she says she was often underestimated by both colleagues and informants. In 2007, Rigby Assad was assigned to help investigate an ambush that killed an American woman in Iraq. The case brought her face-to-face with the Sunni insurgent nicknamed Abu Muhammad and changed the course of her career. Michelle Rigby Assad takes it from here. It wasn't long after I started training in January 2002 that I realized that the agency was very dated in terms of its understanding of gender, gender relations. So... Because what you're being taught, that tradecraft training, is so critical that first year. So because of that, they assign two students to each mentor. So you really get time with this person so they can really help you understand what your objectives are and and how to um, implement what you're being taught. Now, that gentleman, my mentor, came in to introduce himself to me and my male colleague for the first time. It was very weird. He was probably with us for about 15 or 20 minutes introducing himself, and he never looked at me. And, you know, I think sometimes when these things happen, you kind of second guess yourself, like, am I imagining this? But when he finally left the room, my colleague was like, well, that was weird. He couldn't even look at you. So he was an older gentleman. His specialty was Latin America. And this guy was a living legend at the CIA. And there were books written about him. And everyone told us, like, how lucky we were to get this particular mentor. And I thought, oh, no, (laughs) this guy can't even look at me. And so a couple months later, my colleague left the program because he just realized that he did not want to live this crazy undercover life. And then (laughs) what got really weird in training after that, because my mentor had no one else to look at in the room except for me. So he walked in that first day so uncomfortable, practically crawling out of his skin. And he admitted to me that day, he said, Michelle, I just don't know what to do with you. And I'm like, what does that mean? He said, what is it you want to do? And I said, well, I want to go to the Middle East and I want to do counterterrorism work. And he's like, I don't know how you're going to do that because look at you. You're a nice looking female. You're young. These sources don't respect women. 
you're never going to be able to get the kind of respect you need to get sensitive intelligence out of them. They're just, they're not going to trust you. I'd spent a lot of time in the Middle East by this point, and I thought, well, gosh, I mean, I've been studying all these years to try to get myself to a point where I could be good at this, and this man who's a living legend at the CIA tells me I can't do this. Well, he must know. He must be right. Because on top of that, there was this preference in the CIA among HR that men were better suited to the core collector role, which was operations officers, the ones who were recruiting and handling the sources, and that women were better in this role, like right behind them, supporting that effort, called collection management officers. And in fact, really kind of uh, funneled women into that one role and men into the other, which I found strange because it wasn't a question of your skills or your expertise or your studies or your linguistic abilities. It was simply gender, and I couldn't understand that. So the agency trained us for a year in tradecraft, and then I got to the field, and my bosses were like, you want to recruit sources and handle sources? And I'm like, yeah, you just spent a whole year training me to do that. And they're like, mm, no, we don't think so. So I spent my first good, oh my gosh, four years in the agency thinking I wasn't good enough. I would be lucky to just be average. And that was very soul crushing to a person who's a very type A personality. I'm very competitive. I want to do well. I want to deliver. And so I think that running into those walls was very difficult. So Joseph and I worked together in the Middle East on targeting people to recruit them as sources. And as part of that, you're really developing relationships with people. You're trying, working to establish trust. And so as a married couple, it makes perfect sense, of course, that we would be working together to target people that we were interested in and then to work them together. What that meant was I spent a lot of time entertaining a lot of people and families and going out of your way to get to know people and their interests and their dreams for the future. And when you're targeting someone to be a CIA source, that's a very risky proposition for them. So you have to find out what matters to them and how this could be useful for them. So that takes time to get to know people in that way and to develop the kind of trust you would need eventually to recruit them. So it was a lot of spending time with people. And if they were nice folks, then that was delightful. And if they were difficult people, that was painful. And unfortunately, I would say because we were doing uh, counterterrorism work, a lot of the individuals that we were developing were not the nicest people in the world. So Saif and Amina were from a country that was very hostile to the United States. So they were definitely of interest because of this individual's position, the husband's position. And I can't say more than that, but you'll just have to trust that he was definitely of interest to the CIA. They were newlyweds and they had a one-year-old baby boy. And Saif was not a particularly nice or easy individual, so we invited Saif and Amina over for dinner one night after we had gotten to know them pretty well. And Joseph told me that after dinner, he was going to take him outside for a walk and hopefully try to gauge his interest in providing sensitive information. It would be particularly wonderful if we found out that he wasn't a fan of his own government and if you could make him feel 
like he was in a safe space, maybe he could admit that to you. So anyway, there was this plan. We'll have dinner. You'll go for a walk, hopefully get some intelligence out of him. And then you'll come back and we'll finish the evening. So that's what happened. Joseph and Safe left. And I thought, you know, this might last 30 minutes or so. Now, the reason why this is so painful, I mean, everybody thinks the CIA is just so exotic and what we do is so sexy all the time. Well, let me tell you what it's really like. It's me sitting with Amina and her one-year-old baby trying to have a conversation with this lovely woman who has a very different kind of Arabic, a very tribal Arabic. In fact, to me, it didn't even sound like Arabic. And so... We spent a lot of time staring at each other. It was so deeply uncomfortable. And then Amina says, you know, American culture is very different than my culture. And I think there's a lot of divorce and this is terrible. And why don't you Americans care about your families like we do in the Middle East? And there's sexual problems and rampant sexuality and something to that effect. People cheating on each other and... That's a very complicated thing to talk about in any language, never mind trying to respond in Arabic. I was so unable to even like try to help her understand what what were the differences. It was so painful. It was hours before Joseph and Safe returned to the apartment and I just thought I was going to die. I'm like, I don't even know how to entertain this woman any longer. She's exhausted. I'm exhausted. The baby's exhausted. And so when they finally came back, I was like, oh, thank God. So they depart. They thank us. And I said to Joseph, we turned on sound masking in the apartment just in case there were any audio devices there. We didn't want the government listening and hearing what we we're saying about what our ops were. Some music. And I'm like, you better have gotten like the golden nuggets of intelligence in this meeting because I was about to die from boredom. This was awful. And he looked at me and he's like, I got nothing. And I was like, what? You must be kidding me. He's like, I got nothing. Safe dragged me to a local bar in his car where he can meet with his local mistress for two hours. And they sat at the bar groping each other kissing each other while I sat uncomfortably next to him thinking, I cannot believe what's going on right now. Well, it's funny now. It certainly wasn't funny in the moment. And, but it's a good example of how difficult it could be to try to develop people that you actually don't have a lot in common with. So when Joseph and I got surged to Baghdad for a year in 2006, Iraq was a mess. It was coming apart at the seams. And in 2007... A group of terrorists attacked the U.S. citizen, a young woman, she was 27 years old, who was in Iraq to help Iraqis learn about the democratic process and voting and elections. And so she was there as a trainer. And after one of her meetings with a local Iraqi party, she and several members of her personal security were brutally murdered on the streets of Baghdad. There was a huge group of terrorists, we're talking between 20 and 30 young men, who attacked this three-car convoy with RPGs, with AK-47s, with handguns. It was just a barrage of gunfire. And so because it resulted in the death of a U.S. citizen, 
our job was to try to figure out who ordered the attack and who executed it. And so basically, I was brought into this effort as a collection management officer who had a very broad knowledge of our sources so that I could try to figure out who might have access to information on this attack. So my husband was handling a source that I'll call Abu Muhammad. This guy was a mid-level insurgent. He was not an ideologue. He was not one of those um, Sharia experts. He was the guy that they sent to like break other people's legs or kill people, you know, make them to fall in line. Abu Muhammad was a guy that you did not mess with. He was one of those that actually knew what the ideology was, and he was wedded to it. He was all in, and he was a bit scary. And Joseph handled him, recruited him, and handled him. And when I became involved in the investigation to try to figure out who was responsible for this earlier attack, Joseph said, well, why don't you come in and debrief him yourself? Nobody knows more about this attack than you do right now, so why don't you just come in and do it yourself? And I was, I was like, really? Because up until this point, I'd been prevented from really meeting with sources. I'd been prevented from getting in front of these bad guys. I'd been told by my mentor and HR I couldn't do it. And yet, here, I'm actually going to get the chance to see if I can. So it was very exciting And it was also terrifying all at the same time because, you know, you feel like the deck is stacked against you as a female. So as I'm preparing for this, I'm very cognizant of what a challenge it's going to be to deal with this mid-level insurgent. It is not easy to recruit guys like Abba Muhammad. But Joseph, having come from the region, having grown up with guys like that, he kind of knew how to talk to them. So you have to figure out what makes them tick, right? You have to figure out what are their motivations? What kind of guy is this? And then Joseph was really good at like moderating his speech and talking in a certain way and saying, look, Abu Muhammad, you're wasting all your time attacking coalition forces while the Shia, who are the majority in this country, are decimating the Sunnis. And you think all your attacks against coalition forces are going to get us to leave earlier and quicker, but actually what's happening is we're surging troops to deal with all of the murders and the terror ops. So you're achieving opposite of what you are trying to achieve. You are hurting yourself. This is not in your best interest. And I love his strategy of just like, find out what matters to the guy and just relay it back to him and say, you need to be focused on helping Sunnis rebuild their villages and their towns and trying to make things stable again so you guys have a better chance at a future. And the more you keep killing us, the less time, less resources, the less people you have to do that. You're getting decimated by the Shia. That's what you need to be concerned with is Iran's influence, not our influence. And Abu Muhammad, he got it. You're listening to I Spy. We'll be right back. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. We return to the story of Michelle Rigby Assad. She was assigned to investigate an ambush in Iraq that killed an American democracy promoter. Back to Rigby Assad. So I'm preparing myself to meet with Abu Muhammad and you know, everything that I do to prepare for this meeting is so important, like what I wear, how I present myself. Um, of course, prior to this, I made sure I read all the intel, all the operational cables on him, all the background, all the traces. Basically, I wanted to go in there knowing everything I could about Abu Muhammad. And of course, I was very familiar with his intel because I was processing that intelligence. So that helped a lot, too. And then, of course, I had Joseph's insights What's it like when you meet with him? How does he act with you? All of these dynamics that would help me mentally prepare for what I was going to deal with when I walked in the room. And so in my mind, I'm thinking about, okay, I know this guy is a tough guy, but I also know that he's probably going to be very excited about meeting with a female. Because even though his terror ideology tells him that you should not be in the room with a woman with whom you're not related that that's haram or forbidden, when given the opportunity, he's probably going to get very excited. And the reason why I know this is because I dealt with so many of these guys. They wanted to break the rules. It was so exciting to be in the room with a young female. And it's a very sexually repressed culture. And so it expresses itself in very strange ways, like super over the moon excited to meet with a female. And you can't help what someone thinks about you when you walk into a room, but you have to understand what those things are if you're going to challenge them. Like, that is the most important thing. When I walk in the room, what is this particular person going to think of me? Because the way they perceive me and their biases and their head about me is going to be different than if I was 6'2 and 350 pounds. Obviously, it's just going to be very different. So that morning, I'm like running through my head you know, what Abu Muhammad's going to think and how I'm going to deal with that. And I'm excited, but I'm super nervous. So that means my hands are shaking, my heart is racing, I'm perspiring, you know, and then I'm thinking about the fact that like, okay, if I don't calm down, he's going to see that my hands are shaking. And if he sees that I'm nervous, he's not going to know the difference between nervous and nervousness and excitement. So I really need to like take deep breaths before I enter the room so that I'm not shaking. I need to not show how I'm really feeling. So I need to walk in the room with my head held high, with my shoulders back. I just need to do everything I can to appear confident in that moment. So the places that we met these guys in in the green zone were they were small rooms let's just say that like probably can't go into too much detail about that but there's just small rooms and chairs to sit in there's like a little mini fridge so you have water or pepsi or whatever some snacks in case your source is hungry but you want to make them feel like they're in a safe place and then if you need an interpreter the interpreter's in the room with you 
And for me, I have some Arabic, but it's not enough for the requirements of intelligence because every word matters. And so unless you're a native speaker of Arabic, like Joseph, you're going to probably need a translator, a linguist, to make sure that you know exactly what's coming out of their mouth. All those verbal responses need to be dissembled and evaluated for the truth. I knock on the door, and as soon as I open the door, I see Abu Muhammad across the room. His eyes catch me, and I see he reacts exactly the way I think he's going to. He is happy and excited. And I'm like, ah, here we go. So I walk across the room acting confident, but also being very aware that he is cataloging everything. What I'm wearing, how I'm walking, what I look like. Everything is being looked at and assessed by him. Because one thing that you may not realize about terrorists is that a lot of them are so street smart. They have high levels of emotional intelligence. So the way that I'm evaluating his every move, he's doing the exact same thing to me. So everything that I am doing in these first few minutes of this meeting, I know matter, and they're going to set the tone for whether this works or it doesn't work. So I walk across the room, I walk straight over to Abu Muhammad, and I shake his hand, and I say, Salamu alaikum, kafiq ya Abu Muhammad. And he is shocked. You speak Arabic? And so, even though we just introduced ourselves, I have already achieved my first objective. I've shocked him. Now, he thinks he knew what I was walking into the room, a pretty girl. He thinks I'm stupid. He thinks I couldn't possibly understand anything about espionage or terrorism or Iraq. He thinks I'm out of my league. I will be easy to manipulate. I will not be a complex thinker. I mean, I know that I'm starting out at a huge disadvantage with him. Like, I get it. I understand. This is what his biases are telling him about me. That's okay. I'm going to challenge every one of them. So then I move on to my, my second objective. And I say, Abu Muhammad, I've been waiting to meet you, very excited to meet you today because I've been following your case. I've read your whole file. I know everything about your relationship with the CIA. And he's standing there with saucers for eyes. And he says, really? You're, you know, it's very exciting, right? You're following me, you know, makes him feel really good. Yes. And I am very aware that what you're doing is very courageous you know, by meeting with the CIA, you're risking your life. And I really appreciate that. These are not nice human beings, right? This guy has certainly killed other human beings before, but he's still risking his life to meet with the CIA. And I want to acknowledge that because we all have egos and we all need to feel like that what we are doing matters. So man, I really appreciate what you've been doing. I know that based on the intelligence you provided in the last two meetings, we probably saved dozens of lives. I thank you for what you're doing. And he is just flabbergasted. I've achieved my second objective. It is to stroke his ego. It is to make him feel valued. But also, it's very deep psychological stuff. By me complimenting Abu Muhammad, I'm actually elevating myself in terms of my authority. I'm telling him what I think of him. 
I'm coming to him as the experienced intelligence officer who's telling him how he's performing. Now, he doesn't even realize that, but what I'm doing is very critical to a guy who five seconds earlier thinks I'm an idiot. I am showing myself to be a figure of authority. Now, I have one more really important objective. I start talking to him about an attack in his neighborhood and what that's done to the fabric of Iraqi society. And I start talking about Iraqi culture. And he's like, wow, you really seem to understand Iraq and Iraqis. I'm like, brother, I have been studying the Middle East for a long time. I don't give him personal details, but I tell him enough to know that, like, I didn't just get off the boat. I'm speaking Arabic to him so he knows I've studied. I talk about details of his culture that everyone else doesn't seem to really know much about. I know what I'm talking about. You want to deal with me. Because unless he feels that I'm responsible and capable to handle his intelligence with care, that's important because if I don't, he could get killed. If he's identified as a source of this intelligence, then he'll get his head cut off and his body thrown into the front yard as a spy. So once I got him past that final obstacle, the tension in that room just fell apart. It was like I could tell that Abu Muhammad was ready to do work. He was ready to engage with me as an intelligence officer and not just a female he could flirt with. Abu Muhammad arrived exactly where I wanted him to be. I had brought to bear all of the effort all of the studies of the Middle East, all of my time trying to understand nuances of culture and how to, uh, to appreciate where an Arab or an Iraqi is coming from, and it worked. And so I realized that I'd been holding back in my career up until that point, and I just wasn't going to do it anymore. Women are not very good at that, but I learned that I needed to be a little bit more forthcoming on my skill set and what I was bringing to the table so leadership could know better how to use me. So yes, I have a mid-level terror insurgent to thank for that realization. So Abu Muhammad was able to ask around to friends, other insurgent colleagues, and was able to kind of guide us in the right direction, like who we needed to look at, who was likely involved in this attack. I was able to do the same thing in other meetings. All the other case officers were like, hey, you did it in that meeting. Why don't you come to my meeting and meet with this guy? So what that did was it got me finally into clandestine operations with bad guys. It got me face to face with them, which is for someone who's a student of human behavior was like the coolest thing. I like the challenge of being told you can't do something and then turn it right around and showing them how very good you are at it. So. Because I had such successful meetings with these sources, and I was able in many cases to get them to share information they'd been holding back, it was a turning point in my career because people realized I was very skilled in that agent management, agent handling role. And then later on in my career, I was able to then take on much more difficult cases like potential double agents and sources that were difficult trying to figure out what was actually going on in these relationships. Working with your spouse, if you're both in the CIA and you're both working in the same place, it definitely made me a stronger, better officer because of it. 
I think it would be very lonely if your spouse wasn't in. And there are plenty of people who have married someone on the outside and they've made it work. But at the same time, you know, it would be very difficult for a spouse not on the inside to understand what you were dealing with. You have access to the same cable traffic. You know, basically, there were no secrets. We were working on the same stuff. When you're stressed out, there's no need to try to figure out how to tell your spouse why you're stressed. They know because they're right in the thick of it with you. The massive stress that comes with trying to collect life-saving information, the massive stress involved in running for bunkers multiple times a day, you can't understand it unless you've been there. And so I was much better as a tandem couple, as one part of this tandem unit. I was very grateful for that. So you can imagine that a 10-year career of serving in really difficult places wears on you. You're living undercover and you're living on the other side of the world. You miss weddings and birthdays and births of children and you miss your family. You miss normal, kind of, what is normal life? You're living in an intelligence bubble you are living a very kind of dangerous existence and you just can't do that forever. It is exhausting. So towards the end of that 10 years, we were weary. It wore on our marriage, to be very honest with you. We were kind of starting to feel stressed in our marriage. We were pretty clear that it was time to leave towards the end of that 10 years. But at the same time, as much as you know it's time to leave, it is terrifying. (laughs) You don't know how to exist outside the CIA. You don't know exactly what you're going to do. You don't know how much you should get paid. You don't even have an actual real resume. You have a resume that doesn't say anything very interesting. (laughs) You have really 10 years you can't account for in your life. You can't even tell people exactly where you've been. You're super sketchy. How do you get another job? How do you leap out of that great, big, stable government boat into the great unknown? We knew a lot of people who had left the CIA and then come back in because it was just too hard to make it on the outside. So it was a huge leap of faith. But never look back and have enjoyed our post-CIA career immensely and find it quite fulfilling as well thankfully. Michelle Rigby Assad spent 10 years in the CIA. She recounts her experiences in the book, Breaking Cover, My Secret Life in the CIA. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for podcast is Dan Efron. Our team includes Rob Sachs, Laura Rossbrow Tellum, Rosie Julin, and Claudia Tatey. Our show now has a newsletter and it's absolutely free. It includes beautiful illustrations that the artist Guy Shield makes for iSpy, photographs from some of the missions described on the podcast, and other bonus content you won't find anywhere else. To sign up, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpyNewsletter. That's foreignpolicy.com slash iSpyNewsletter iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in smart news and analysis from around the world, please consider subscribing. 
iSpy listeners can get a 15% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code iSpy at checkout. Next week on the show, a Secret Service officer travels to the Maldives to capture one of the world's most notorious cyber criminals. All of this information is being relayed to the command team listening in on the conference line. And at this point, I, I started shaking. If we touched down with Selesnev anywhere that wasn't part of the U.S., the Russians would put a lot of pressure on that country to keep him there and not let him leave. And that could easily become an international incident. That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale.